Welcome to Matanzers, a baseball podcast. I'm Max Tanzer, joined alongside Ryan Medeiros. And we got another jam-packed week. Ryan, tons of moves happening in Major League Baseball, all big and small, but we have it covered for you guys. But before we get to that, we got a little update here on the Matanzers matchup right here. We have a winner crown. I'm, I'm super excited about this. Before, before we get there, Ryan, how are you doing today? I know, I know we're going to break some tough news for you in a couple seconds here. I'm doing all right, Max. It's a long, long year, so I have a feeling that I'm going to make a comeback and more on you. Well, you alluded to it right there. I am the first ever winner of the Matanzas matchup here in January. Is the deciding factor uh, was the over/under for two and a half top-tier free agent signings, and our free agents were Trevor Bauer, George Springer, J.T. Realmuto, Marcelo Zuna, and D.J. LeMahieu. Springer, Realmuto, and LeMahieu all signed in this month. So I got the deciding victory in that one. We'll get you our February picks in a couple of weeks, or literally about a couple of days from now, as it's January 30th. This month flew by, uh, and maybe Ryan can even things up. All right, let's go over some quick headlines before we get into the thick of things right here. The first one, one I love to see, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, Hall of Famer, former Mariner, former Red, former White Sox, uh, has been named the senior advisor to Rob Manfred. He'll focus on consulting the office, office on baseball operations, youth baseball development, and diversity at amateur levels. I mean, there's not a perfect guy to do this. A, the kid is going to be the one trying to get more kids involved in Major League Baseball and interested in baseball. Great move. I'm super happy about it. Yeah, no, you said it all right there in Ken Griffey Jr. has long been one of your idols, so there's no one better to speak on him than, than you. I will add just how passionate he is about the game. I mean, he wouldn't be chosen for a position like this if he wasn't so passionate. He's been involved in baseball since he's left the game. One of the true legends in baseball, and like you said, couldn't be a better person to fill this role. Yeah, next we have Daniel Murphy calling it quits, retiring after 12 big league seasons with the New York Mets, Washington Nationals, Colorado Rockies, and Chicago Cubs. A good for career for Daniel, three-time All-Star hit, 296 in his career, the 2016 NL MVP runner-up, and of course we can't forget about that historic 2015 postseason run. Quite a career for him. Um, it's sad to see him go as he's been quite a, a fun player to watch, a really fun story as well, seeing him develop over the last 10 years. Yeah, and he was one of those guys who was a late bloomer, and just about as quick as he came on the scene, he kind of fell off, unfortunately. He had those two massive years with the Nationals. What a great deal for the Washington Nationals, obviously, after that huge postseason. They saw some flashes in Murphy and signed him, and he finished second in the MVP voting in one of those years, and just a fantastic hitter, true, pure hitter. Didn't strike out a whole lot, hit for high averages, hit for power, extra base hits. He was doing it all at one point, and unfortunately in the last year with the Rockies, he kind of just fell off a table, and I'm sure he played it out this 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 offseason, rather, and, you know, he just didn't find an offer he was looking for or maybe just figured out that it was time to call it quits. But, yeah, he left it all out there on the field and really couldn't be more happy with him. Absolutely, and really inserted himself into the lore of the New York Mets with that big postseason run. Lastly, Zach Scott in the waking of the Jared Porter incident has been named the acting general manager uh, for the New York Mets, uh, a former Red Sox guy in their organization since 2004. I'm sure you're a little bit familiar with him, Ryan. Uh, interesting move, obviously. You know, Sandy Alderson said they weren't going to try and make a big move to bring in a new GM, and they're going sort of in their organization. Uh, should be interesting to see how he and the Mets uh, end this offseason. Yeah, not too much to add on this one. Uh, Scott obviously is a very intelligent person, has had some experience in front offices, a real analytical guy. So he pretty much just stepped up from you know that second-tier role into that top-tier role, just kind of a fill-in after the Porter scandal. 
Speaking of another former Red Sox executive, Dave Dombrowski was busy this week as well with the Philadelphia Phillies signing JT Real Muto, getting their guy to a five-year, $115 million deal. Real Muto will be heading into his age 30 season, and this was the guy this offseason for the Philadelphia Phillies. We know their bullpen woes, but JT Real Muto, I mean, there weren't too many options left with James McCann off the market, uh, and they got him. And I think it's a pretty friendly deal for both ends. Oh, it's a fantastic deal, and again, a perfect marriage for both sides. Romito really stepped it up after coming to Philadelphia. Two great seasons. He had the 109 OPS plus in his first season. He was an all-star in 2019, and then in 2020, stepped it up to an 840 OPS, 123 OPS plus, plays fantastic defense, just a true athlete. I know there's been some discussions of, do you really want to give a five-year deal to a guy who's entering his age 30 season? He's 30 years old now, but... You know, Real Muto, if there's anybody, any catcher that you want to give a type of deal like this to, it's Real Muto just because of the athleticism. If you look at StatCast here, he's 84th percentile in sprint speed, so he's a really athletic runner. That's not just among catchers and guys at his position. That's stacked up against center fielders, shortstops, every other position on the field. He rated 84th percentile, so really fast guy. Again, speaking on the defensive side of the ball, 95th percentile in framing. We know about his fantastic pop time. He hits well, he hits for average, extra base hits, makes good contact. He pretty much does almost everything well. No doubt, and I mean, I think he earned some of the different uh, mentions that I'm going to talk about here. Uh, Highest paid free agent catcher, surpassing Brian McCann by a large margin, uh, who made $85 million going into 2014 with the the Yankees. Largest also average annual value for a catcher in Major League Baseball history, just scratched over Joe Maurer, who is at $23 million. And JT got 23.1. I mean, you got to wonder if that's something he was pushing for right there. But like you said, arguably the best catcher in the game, in my opinion, the best catcher in the game from 2019 to 20. He's first in all of qualified catchers and hits, third in home runs, first in doubles, second in OPS. And like you said, first in stolen bases as well with that speed. So a good move for the Phillies. They were not done yet. They were due to lose another key part of their offense, shortstop D.D. Gregorius, but they were able to bring him back just as early as this morning on a two-year $28 million deal. Again, they're bringing that offense back from last year, which was very good. Tied for fifth in runs with 306 in Major League Baseball, so tied for seventh with OPS, a team OPS of 781. Uh, again, this doesn't make them better than they were last year offensively, but gets them back to what they were, and I think that's a big step going into 2021 in the daunting NL East. Oh, it's a huge step, and you can't speak en- enough about what Gregorius did for the Phillies offense last year. Really underlooked at a shortstop position that has just been so dominant over the past few years in all of Major League Baseball. 119 OPS plus, he had 10 doubles, 10 home runs, hit for good average, 284, pretty solid there, makes good contact again. Uh, Gregorius kind of bet on himself with that one-year deal with the Phillies, and the Phillies are rewarded as he kind of returns to them. Maybe, you know, he felt comfortable in that one year. That's kind of, you know, the thing you have to weigh when you when a team gives one-year deals like that. Maybe if they have a good year, the player will be more inclined to return because he's comfortable. And that's exactly the case with Gregorius. We saw the dominoes start to fall as we saw Simmons sign. We saw maybe a guy like Galvis sign. We saw Simeon sign. We'll get to those signings later in the show. But, you know, it kind of just fell into the Phillies' hands, really. Gregorius, at this point, was the one main shortstop guy left, and it was a glaring hole, like you said. The other team that he potentially could have gone to is the Reds, but clearly the Phillies outbid them in this case. Yeah, no, I was hearing the Reds wanted to bring 
uh, him back as well. And I think for the Phillies, this is a must-move. They had to get a shortstop regardless. I know I heard Freddie Galvis was in some rumblings as well. We'll talk about him a little bit later. But out of all the options that were left, really, D.D. might have been the best fit just because he's familiar with the organization uh, in that clubhouse as well. I've heard great things about his personality. So a good move overall. The last one for the Phillies this week was Matt Moore, who's making a comeback. They signed him to a one-year $3 million Deal plus incentives, more a former top prospect, and all star with the Tampa Bay Rays in 2013. He's had a little bit of a difficult career after that. Uh, was held back by Tommy John surgery that put him out through the most majority of 2014 and 15. Uh, only through 10 innings with the Tigers in 2019, but then goes over to Japan, does well in 15 starts, 85 innings, struck out 98 batters, a 2.65 ERA. Did miss a couple months because of an early season calf strain, but still threw more innings than any Philly starter last year. I like this move. Again, I think it is just to sort of eat innings, give him a chance to help those other guys in the rotation out. But it really, I don't, I think it's a buy low, high reward sort of situation for them right here. Oh, for sure. But we've talked about in previous shows just how important eating innings is going to be in a year like 2021, especially after the shortened 2020 season. And the fact that Moore was able to pitch overseas and get 12-plus starts and, and pitch a good amount of innings is going to help him coming into 2021 in the big leagues where he's probably going to be expected to throw upwards of 120, close to 150 innings, potentially even more if he's really successful. So it's a good signing for the Phillies. I think it's a low-risk signing. And like you said, their reward could be pretty high if he pitches up to the level that he showed early in his career. Yeah, and I, correction here too. I believe the 15 starts combined the postseason as well uh, for him that year in the Japan situation. Um, there's not, there's another team out there in the NL East right now that's also looking to compete with the Mets and the Braves, and that's the Washington Nationals, who went out and signed Brad Hand to a one-year $10.5 million deal. Interesting situation for Brad Hand because he had an option for $10 million, but uh, the Indians put him on waivers, and he was a free agent. Nationals, who we initially actually thought it was the Mets who was going to go get Brad Hand. It's now the Washington Nationals. Bolster uh, back in the bullpen that's pretty solid right now with Daniel Hudson, Will Harris, and now Brad Hand. A good move. I know he's lost some velo on that fastball, but still was able to put up really good numbers last year. Yeah, and I think any concerns in the drop in velo should be addressed by just how fantastic of a season Hand had this past season in 2020. 205 ERA, 16 for 16 on saves. And, you know, he had a 2.26 ERA plus, so it doesn't get much better than that. In previous seasons, he has really good closer experience with the Indians in 2019. He was an all-star with a 3.3 ERA, 34 saves with a 1.45 ERA plus. So really good numbers for him the past few seasons. And really his career broke out in 2016 when he was traded to the Padres and became a full-time reliever. And he's really run with it since then. He's been really successful, really hasn't had any tough years from or really since 2015 really good success three-time all-star since then 2017 18 and 19 so Brad Hand I think is about as solid of an option as you can ask for at the back end of the bullpen the Nationals who have been lacking a really reliable option I know they had Daniel Hudson last year but he struggled mightily at points with an ERA well over five so I think this really solidifies the back end of the bullpen and the Phillies saw it last year when you're a borderline team and you don't have a solid back end of the bullpen you become a below-average team, and the Nationals might have just elevated themselves to an above-average team, or even you know much or a well-above-average team by just solidifying the back end of their pen. No doubt, and I think it's a really good replacement for uh, Sean Doolittle, uh, left-handed reliever in that bullpen should slot right in there. Um, let's move to the Blue Jays now. Uh, 
The Mets sending left-handed pitcher Stephen Matz over to Blue Jays for three right-handed prospects. Now, Stephen Matz, it's an interesting story. 2020 was not a year to remember for him. A 9.68 ERA in 30 and two-thirds of an innings pitch. But in 2018, the 19 was very dependable. 409 ERA in 314 and one-third of an innings pitch. So it'll be an interesting move for a Blue Jays team that is desperate for starting pitching right now. They see more of sort of a move for the Mets to get that $5 million off their payroll. Uh, what are your thoughts about this one? You know, this is a really fascinating deal because Steven Matz was at one point one of the best young pitchers in baseball. I'm looking at his StatCast profile from the 2020 season, and there's some fascinating things on here. He relates or he rates below or in the 10th percentile or lower in exit velocity, hard hit percentage, expected ERA, expected batting average, among other categories. But he's 62nd percentile in K percentage, 70th percentile in walk percentage, and 73rd percentile in fastball velocity. So there's some, there's definitely tools there. It's just a matter of harnessing those tools, and maybe the Blue Jays saw something and that they felt like they could address that will make him, you know, they, that could take him back to that uh, really good level he was at when he first broke into the big leagues with the Mets. No doubt. And I think a change of scenery would really help him out, too. You know, it seems like he was kind of the odd man out in that rotation for the Mets. It almost seemed that David Peterson had passed him up, and there were questions on whether Mats would be moved to the bullpen or not. Uh, so, good opportunity for him. Uh, he'll definitely have an opportunity to compete for a starting job and be able to still be on a very competitive and promising team. A promising team that got even better this week after signing George Springer. Uh, the previous week, it was Marcus Simeon previous shortstop of the A's, will now be heading to Toronto on a one-year $18 million deal. The one big thing about this one is Bo Bichette's at shortstop, so Marcus Simeon will likely be, be playing second base here. Interesting that he got a one-year deal, but worth $18 million, a very high value right there, uh, and gets an opportunity to really prove that he can be that MVP caliber self, caliber self again here as he heads into free agency again after 2021. Yeah, and you mentioned that MVP caliber season he had in 2019, and he played 162 games, had a 139 OPS plus, so that's well above all-star level. He slugged 43 doubles, 7 triples, 33 home runs, you know, adding up to 92 RBIs. He scored 123 runs with the A's, leading off for them for the majority of that 2019 season. Took a step back in 2020 with a 91 OPS plus, that's 9 points below league average. But, you know, he performed well in the postseason, so I was reading an interesting article by Mike Petriello where it showed that if you put Simeon's postseason stats with his regular season stats, he was actually above average this past season. So in a shortened season, Simeon's performance can be one of those that you can kind of toss out and not look at too much. I think if you were to be concerned about one thing, that 91 OPS plus kind of falls in line with his career averages prior to the 2019 season, 93, 98, 99, 97, 95. So he's been a below average bat for the majority of his career. But you know, that 2019 season isn't a fluke in my mind. I think he can return maybe not quite to that level with the Blue Jays, but something and anything close is going to be great for them in an offense that is already well above average. No doubt, and he's historically been a pretty good defender. I know when he first came up, or I, he was with the White Sox, then went over to Oakland. He was struggling mightily defensively at shortstop. I believe he led the league in errors, uh, but then turned out to be very good in 2019. Uh, was the 10th best defender according to Sabres defensive index at 7.5. That's all out of all defenders in Major League Baseball. Outs above average does not make him look pretty, but I think there's other uh, statistics and so forth like Sabres uh, defensive index that should su su suggest that he's much better than 
you know, the outs above average would suggest. So good news for that aspect. Maybe takes a little bit of pressure off him moving to second base as well. The one big piece now for the Blue Jays is that they need pitching. And we uh, we talked about them acquiring Steven Batts, but probably at least one more starter out there. I think James Paxton would be a perfect fit at this point. Health is an issue, but he's from Toronto, and he's still a good, dependable middle-of-the-rotation arm. Tywin Walker bringing him back as well. I know those former Mariners right there. Both of those guys would be very good options. If they could just get one more guy, I think they're in better shape. And not to detract from your point here, but I'm not sure a lefty Paxton fits quite well with them. I think Walker is a much better fit, so I'll give you kudos for that. But in a team where, or in a, in a division, rather, that has the Yankees that are a right-handed power-hitting team. I don't think having Mats, Ray, Ryu, True, that's already a little shaky in yeah. my mind. Adding Paxton to that might not be the best scenario. I think a righty would help keep those teams honest and, you know, would be a better fit. Yeah, I don't want to be running three or four lefties out there. Next move we got, an interesting one, not just because of the player move, but... Uh, the circumstances around it. The Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees making a trade as the Yankees sent over Adam Adovino to the Red Sox in exchange for cash and their 24th overall prospect, Frank Herman. I'll let you take the floor on this one, Ryan, since it is your Red Sox involved. They got a pretty dependable relief pitcher in this one. I think this was a fantastic deal for the Red Sox, and the one thing that could be concerning if you're a Red Sox fan is the fact that, hey, you just cleared up some financial space for the Yankees to go in and sign whoever they want. And we'll get to who they sign later to replace Adovino, but I just think this is a great deal. Not only do you get a dependable back end of the bullpen guy, you get a prospect with it. So that's that's just what the Red Sox were hoping to do this offseason is maybe, you know, use some of their financial flexibility to help buy some prospects, and that's exactly what they did in this deal. But don't sleep on the fact that Adovino was a fantastic reliever in 2019, 1.8. 9 ERA. He struck out a ton of batters. In this past season, he had a 5.89 ERA, but that was largely just to, due to a blow up in Buffalo at one point against the Blue Jays. His expected ERA for the season was 3.75, and that's with that blow up as well. So he pitched pretty well this season. I think he'll step into the closers role actually above Matt Barnes in the Red Sox bullpen. Maybe they'll go out and sign somebody else. I find that unlikely at this point because they only have about $6 million left to spend. But I think Ottavino will help shore up the back end of the bullpen, and they get a nice prospect to help, you know, bolster their farm system. Without a doubt, 19 career saves for Ottavino in his major league career. So, like you said, they get an opportunity to be a full-time closer for the first time in his career. And just to reiterate here, I mean, the Red Sox basically paid about nine million dollars here to get a star relief pitcher plus a prospect. The Yankees will pay eight hundred fifty thousand dollars of that deal. But essentially that is the case right there. Uh, so Heim did it. He got a reliever. Interesting to see the Yankees willing to give up a pretty good reliever to a rival team, of course, like the Boston Red Sox. We'll see if it bites them later in the season. They'll face each other at least nineteen times. Alrighty, well you alluded to it earlier, the Yankees did open up some money to acquire a couple of players per se, but the one immediate one was Darren O'Day, a one-year $1.75 million deal with a $1.4 million player option for 2022 with a $700,000 buyout. Uh, the Braves declined his option earlier this offseason. A very uh, dependable arm they're getting in Darren O'Day, a guy who hasn't thrown as many innings in the last couple of years, just 41 innings since 2018, but has been very good uh, ever since 2009. He's had just one season with an ERA over a 3-8 in that span, besides a 16-inning blip in 2011. So a really good veteran piece they're bringing into this bullpen right here. 
Yeah, what a fantastic season O'Day had in 2020. 1.1 ERA, 19 games. He had 22 strikeouts and 16 to third innings pitched. Good enough for a 4.40 ERA plus. What an, what an astronomical number that is. <laughs> yeah, kind of mind-boggling number there, but... You know, he's fantastic against right-handed batters. He basically will just slot into Ottavino's role, kind of in the middle innings, maybe a fireman-type relief pitcher that can come in and get you out of a jam. The funny thing about O'Day, or kind of fascinating thing, rather, is the fact that, you know, a lot of these submarine-type pitchers tend to be more ground ball guys, but O'Day has struck out a good amount of batters. I mentioned that, 22 strikeouts and 16 to third innings. So he strikes out a ton of batters. Uh, really fascinating pickup for the Yankees, and I think, you know, they got him at a pretty good bargain yeah something interesting just about the financials in this too that I was reading about is the Yankees obviously had about eight million dollars to spend before eclipsing the luxury luxury tax which is at about 210 million dollars this offseason they manipulated the contract in such an interesting way as I said they had a 1.4 million dollar player option for 2022 with a 700 thousand dollar buyout if Oday goes for the buyout the Yankees will then have a $3.15 million club option available to spend. So basically, O'Day will be making, no matter what in this case, between 2.45 and 3.15. But because the 700 k is the only guaranteed part in that second year, it's the only part that goes under the luxury tax. So the Yankees are still saving about a million dollars in luxury tax space in that case and still giving O'Day somewhat sort of guaranteed money. Uh, more than at least the $700,000. So interesting moves by Brian Cashman right there. We'll see if there's any other corresponding moves to follow this one. They do have some room left per se. But another big move they made before this O'Day trade was the Jamison Talion trade in exchange for four prospects with the Pittsburgh Pirates, excuse me. Talion, or Tyone, excuse me, will be reunited with his former teammate and Garrett Cole. Also joins Corey Kluber. His new start is added this offseason by Brian Cashman. Didn't pitch in 2020 because of Tommy John surgery. The second time in his career he's had to go through that surgery, but still a very promising young and cheap arm for the Yankees who's only owed $2.25 million next year. Yeah, and if he comes back and performs well at any, you know, at any level, you can't talk about a guy who's had to overcome more in his career. Two Tommy John surgeries, the bout with testicular cancer, and just what a fantastic career when he's on the field. 3-6-7 ERA in 82 career games started, 446 innings. He just performs well. He's a great competitor when he's on the field. The most fantastic season he had was in 2018 when he had a 3-2 ERA and 32 games started. Struck out 179 batters and 191 innings with the Pirates kind of filling in that pitch-to-contact approach the Pirates are so well-known for, and he's excelled in that role. He's going to get you to, you know, hit into some weak contact, and he also has good enough stuff to strike you out. So it'll be interesting to see how the Yankees apply his pitch repertoire, but I think no matter what, if this guy gets back on the field, he's going to be a guy that you're rooting for. Yeah, and I think the report is that he's going to try and use his four-seamer a lot more this year, which should hopefully be a good sign. That's obviously what happened with Garrett Cole. Uh, and a lot of other pitchers who have blossomed in the last few years. Also has a very good curveball as well. So some really interesting tools. And the Yankees looking for something really promising here to be in the middle of that rotation. All right, next, another team in the American League East. A smaller move, but just as significant in many ways. Freddie Galvis signing a one-year, $1.5 million deal with the Baltimore Orioles. Really just to replace Jose Iglesias at this point. A guy who's been very durable, a pretty good defender as well. Uh, and it's a depth move. I think a guy who has some experience of playing at the major league level uh, and will fill some good at bats for you for them for them this season. 
Yeah, and he's kind of like Iglesias, a light-hitting shortstop and a great defender. Don't sleep on Galvis's power. In 2019, he had 28 doubles, 23 home runs, and slugged 438. That was between a stint with the Toronto Blue Jays and the Cincinnati Reds, who he played with last season. He took a, he took a step back offensively in 2020 with an 86 OPS+. Plus. But like I said, his main value is going to come on the defensive side of the ball, and he's performed very well at the shortstop position, and he's a veteran guy who knows the position very well. Another good shortstop, another veteran shortstop, Alderton Simmons signing with the Minnesota Twins on a one-year $10.5 million deal. Seems like he's been in the league forever, but he's just turning 31 this year. Uh, arguably, if I don't know even if no, there, if, no, if there's an argument, he definitely is the best shortstop defensively of the last 10 years. He'll push over Jorge Polanco to second base, which should take some pressure off him. An average hitter at best most of the time, but again, you're getting a premier elite defender at shortstop. Uh, that should help that Twins infield. Yeah, when Simmons is healthy, which has been a question mark over the past couple seasons, he is the best defender in baseball, in my opinion. You could make an argument for a guy like Kevin Kiermeyer in center field, but the way Simmons just locks down the shortstop position, cannon for an arm, fantastic range, just a great athlete on the field, and he's been okay at the plate. He's been about league average in his career, maybe a little below league average. He's had some flashes at the plate in 2018. He had a 108 OPS+. Plus. With a 292 average, he's always going to make good contact. He rated last year in the StatCast category 93rd percentile in whiff percentage, 95th percentile in K percentage, so he's going to put the ball in play. He doesn't hit the ball very hard, which is the reason why he doesn't have great power numbers or the average isn't always super high. Last year was at 297, so good numbers for him with the average-wise 346 on base. He's not going to you know, take a lot of pitch. He's going to be up there. He's going to be aggressive. He's going to put the ball in play, but like we said, his value almost completely comes on the defensive side of the ball, but you know I just wanted to throw those numbers out there because he's not one of those guys that's just going to give up and at bat at the plate. No doubt, no doubt, and that's not what I meant by that. Um, but uh, now we move or stay in the AL Central here with the Cleveland Indians. We got Cesar Hernandez, Gold Glove winner at second base this year, signing a one-year five million dollar deal with the Indians, and with a 2022 club option worth six million dollars. Staying with the Indians. Um, after he hit free agency this season. Again, a guy who's durable, played 58 games last year, led the American League with 20 doubles as well. It's going to be interesting to see how they manage that because they added uh, Jimenez and Rosario from the Mets in the door trade this season. I was reading on it that they might start Jimenez in AAA to manipulate the service time a little bit, so then Cesar might be their opening day uh, second baseman in that case. But it's going to be interesting to see uh, how Tito Francona and the crew uh, manage those three guys. I think the more likely scenario is that we see Rosario getting traded. Yeah, uh, I saw The that best too. fit for him that's been talked about was the fit with the Cincinnati Reds, and I think that would be a fantastic fit. Uh, you got to give credit looking back to them for actually getting two starting shortstop quality young players from the Mets in the Lindor trade. Obviously, trading away your franchise player isn't always the best look, but the return they got was pretty solid based on that. You know, Hernandez, like you said, Gold Glover last year, fantastic defender at the second base position, led in the league with 20 doubles, as you said, with a 106 OPS plus, so 6% above league average. That's not too bad for a fantastic defender at the position. I think he'll continue to put up decent about league average offensive stats while also providing you with a very solid glove at the second base position. Next, we got Eddie Rosario, also signed by the Cleveland Indians on a one-year $8 million deal was non-tendered by the Twins earlier this season. He'll be getting to go back to Minnesota a lot this year. 
He mashes at progressive fielding. 45 games, 11 home runs, a 353 average, slugging 653, an OPS of 1,031. So good numbers there. Obviously, will probably decline a little bit as he'll be playing there more often. Uh, but a guy who just as recently as 2019 had a dominant season offensively and can help out an Indians outfield that has struggled mightily the last couple of seasons. I like this move for them. Yeah, fantastic. I'm going to appreciate you bringing up that stat of uh, his performance at Progressive Field. Great number there. Um, I do like this fit for the Indians. Uh, They paid him a good amount for a guy who doesn't get on base a whole lot and is kind of poor defensively, notoriously. But, you know, he's shown flashes. He's got a good arm in the outfield, and he's exactly what the Indians needed, a proven run producer in the outfield. They haven't had a proven run producer in the outfield since Michael Brantley, arguably, you know, left them for free agency to join the Astros not a few years ago. But, you know, uh, 109 career OPS plus, so he's well above league average. 115 OPS plus last year, 13 home runs. I want to look at his slash line here because this kind of tells this Rosario's career story. In 2020, he batted 257, so decent average, 277 career batting average. So he's going to put up, you know, about league average uh, batting averages. 316 on-base percentage, so that was six points above his career average of 310, which isn't very good. He clearly yeah. is up there. He swings the bat, swings just about everything. everything. So that's yeah. going to be kind of his. That's going to be kind of his fault at the plate. But you know, 476 slugging percentage, which is two points below his career average. So he's gonna hit for power. He's gonna drive in runs. He had the 109 runs batted in in 2019. And I know RBIs is kind of you know. Some people call it an outdated stat, but he's still driving those runners in, and that 500 slugging percentage in 2019 certainly stands out, and I think it's something that he could definitely reach in 2021 with the Indians. No doubt about that, and it's a good step in the right direction for them as a team that still potentially could compete in 2020. All right, let's move to the favorite, arguably, in the American League Central, those Chicago White Sox, making a minor deal but a good depth move. Uh, bringing back Carlos Rodon on a one-year $3 million deal. It was non-tendered earlier this season by the White Sox. Uh, was projected to make about 4 or $5 million, so they'll save $2 million in this case. Did have Tommy John surgery in 2019, but good rotational depth if Kopech wants, or if they want Kopech to start in AAA. Also could be a decent bullpen arm from the left side as well. Again, depth, but you can never have enough pitching. Uh, and a familiar face to bring back into that White Sox clubhouse. Yeah, Rodon's a fascinating case because he showed flashes early on in his career when he broke on the scene in 2015. He had a 3.5, 3.75 ERA, 139 in the third innings pitched with 139 strikeouts. So he was striking out just about a batter per inning when he first broke on the scene. He took a step back in 2016. He had a 4.04 ERA, 28 games started. He wasn't too far off where he was. His biggest fault, though, really, is just health. He cannot stay healthy. In 2017, after those first two solid years in 15 and 16, he only threw 12 games. In 2018, he only started 20. 2019, only 7. In 2020, he only appeared in four games. So health is just an issue, and he's had troubles staying consistently healthy. When he's on the field, he can be an, a difference maker based on the fact that you know he stepped on the scene and, and performed very well in his first couple seasons. And I think if he can just stay healthy, he should be able to regain that form and could be a nice depth piece for the White Sox at worst. For sure. Staying in that division, we got one more central 
move right here. Wilson Ramos signing a one-year, $2 million deal with the Detroit Tigers after spending the last couple of seasons with the New York Mets. Ramos has had a tough last couple of seasons. The defense has really declined. He's had some drama in the clubhouse with his pitchers and so forth. But at one point, was one of the better offensive catchers in Major League Baseball. Uh, and I think this is a good opportunity for him this year with the Detroit Tigers. A low-pressure situation can kind of sort of get back on his feet here and try to regain himself a little bit. Uh, and again, a catching situation that's interesting. They got Jake Rogers in the Justin Verlander trade. Did not play at all last season and they have Griner as well those are the three guys including Ramos who are on the 40-man roster for the Tigers right now so it'll be interesting Ramos is probably the starting catcher on opening day again a good opportunity for him to just get some at-bats every day yeah and my first thought is what is Jacob deGrom gonna do without his catcher <laughs> yeah no you you alluded to it right there about how he's had some trouble and some of his pitchers haven't been you know all that thrilled with his defensive metrics and defensive performance over the past few seasons but just as soon as 2018, he had a 130 OPS plus. He hit 306 with a 358 on base, 487 slugging, good enough for an 845 OPS. Drove in 70 runs and only 416 plate appearances. So he is a good run producer when he's healthy. I just don't know how healthy he is at this stage of his career. Clearly the Tigers believe in him, or maybe they're just kind of bringing him in to be, like you said, a placeholder for Jake Rogers. Honestly, I mean... DH him maybe too. I don't know what their DH situation is currently, but you know, I if the defense is struggling and he's a good offensive bat, why not try to give him those at bats and take some pressure off the legs? As that's been an issue for him the last couple of years as well. You know, I gave those 2018 stats, give him a little credit to detract from that a little bit in 2020. He had a 297 on base, which is you know very poor, <laughs> with a 387 slugging. That's an 888 OPS plus. So. Not very good performance for him in 2020, but the Tigers have to be hoping that he can take a step closer to where he was in 2018. All right, let's move to the big one right here. The news broke last night, and this is an interesting one, a complicated one, and to add on top of that, it's not even confirmed yet here, but we'll do the best we can here. So the Colorado Rockies trading superstar third baseman Nolan Arenado and $50 million to the St. Louis Cardinals reportedly for reliever Austin Gomber and prospects Luke and Baker, Joan Torres, Jake Woodford, and Angel Rondon, uh, as reported by Ken Rosenthal. So Torres is the Cardinals' ninth prospect. So they're not, and the Cardinals aren't particularly known for having a, star, a deep farm system here. Um, and it's been swirling around for a while, this rumor, right? Arenado felt disrespected by the Rockies for even shopping him at that point last year. And it feels like, you know, we have Chris Bryant, Nolan Arenado, constantly in the trade talks. And we have it happen here, uh, per se. And he's going to a St. Louis Cardinals team where everyone expects him to want to stay because he does have some opt-outs in that deal. Uh, it's a very complicated deal. But as it looks right now, the Cardinals finally got that power bat and a guy to fill in that third base spot, which really hasn't been productive since Matt Carpenter a couple years ago. Yeah, and this is a trade that is a tale of two stories. This is great for baseball because Arenado goes to a great baseball city like St. Louis where he'll be able to be seen on big market broadcasts more often. I'm sure we'll see some Cardinals-Cubs games on Sunday Night Baseball if we see every year. Whether they're good or bad, we will. Exactly. So that's a great thing for baseball. He's going to get more air time. People are going to see this fantastic player. And I'll touch on his stats. I mean, 120 career OPS, 
plus. I mean, that's just fantastic. 20% above league average, and that's with fantastic defense. His first, his really his first down year offensively since 2013 when he broke into the big leagues in 84 OPS plus last season, but we know he was dealing with a shoulder issue and a couple other things that clearly, you know, tampered his performance at the plate, but you know, prior to that, 130 OPS plus, 133, 130, 129, 124, 115, always well above league average, all-star territory, and he's uh, an all-star in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, perennial all-star candidate, Nolan Arenado, and that's largely due to the fact that he performs well on both sides of the ball, one of the best defensive players in baseball. He spoke on Simmons earlier in the show how great he is defensively. Nolan Arenado is Simmons, you know, playing third base, essentially, the same level of defensive excellence at different positions. And and he brings a fantastic bat to the plate, whereas Simmons is, you know, his main value comes on the defensive side of the ball. Arenado can impact the game on the offensive side of the ball, the defensive side of the ball. He's a great leader in the clubhouse. All facets of the game. Maybe the closest thing we can get to a five-tool player. I know Mike Trout's probably a little closer. Ronald Acuna Jr. Arenado doesn't impact the game on the base pass as much if you want to detract one thing from his from his performance on the field, but, you know, he does a lot of things well. Now, let me get to the second side of this <laughs> trade that's, you know, after my upbeat little rant on how great Arenado is, you know, the downside of this is, what are the Rockies doing? They essentially paid a team $50 million to take their star player, the face of their franchise. People were, you know, crapping on the Indians trade with Lindor. They actually got a good return. I mean, the the Rockies essentially got nothing back. Obviously, Gomber had a great season last year, 14 games, four games started, pitched to a sub-2 ERA, you know, good numbers for him, but let's not detract from the fact that you're trading him and a couple other fringe prospects. I know that it was the number nine prospect, but comparatively to the return the Indians got for Lindor, you know, this is nothing. Yeah, and they no. paid them $50 million. This I, is just bad. It looks bad for baseball. It just goes to show you that, you know, we've seen Betts traded. We've seen Lindor traded. But both of those teams actually got decent returns. This is just pathetic for the Rockies. Uh, that's the perfect way to say it. It is pathetic. And I think a part of the $50 million is is in Arenado's contract, if he gets traded, he gets an extra year um, of, I think it was, what, like something around $15 million extra or something like that added on. So now the... Uh, Cardinals, instead of six years of control, will have seven. But $50 million is a lot of money. And what kind of message does it send to your fan base at that point? We have arguably the most talented player that the Colorado Rockies had ever had. I mean, I know Todd Helton, I know Larry Walker and so forth, but Nolan Arenado, like you said, is a once-in-a-generation five-tool player on path probably to be one of the best, if not the best, third baseman of all time. And you're paying a team $50 million, which is a ton of money, to take him away. It's sad. And what does that tell that fan base that is in a division with the Los Angeles Dodgers, with the San Diego Padres who are pushing forward, with the San Francisco Giants who are making decent moves, still trying to compete, and probably will compete eventually. And all you got with Arenado was two wildcard runs and one division series in which you got swept. It's devastating. I feel terrible for Rockies fans. No, and it was the right move to trade him, but not for this exactly. return. I think this just goes to show you that other teams knew how desperate they were to move him, so they, you know, played that up and didn't the whole give story them this the off-season. return that they were looking for. Yeah. Exactly, and I want to bring up bring up just a number here. I know home runs aren't the best term for evaluating a player, but this just goes to show you the magnitude of an impact Arenado has had from 2015 to 2019. I'll run through the home run totals per year. 
42, 41, 37, 38, 41. And let me add in the doubles per, for those years in the same order. 43, 35, 43, 38, 31. Just an extra base machine. Let me pull in the RBIs. 130, 133, 130, 110, 118. A consistent run producer. Let's pull in the runs. 97, 116, 100, 104, 102. He gets on base, he drives and runs, he does everything well at the plate. And I, I don't, it goes without saying with defensive metrics, he's just a fantastic defender. I think everyone knows that. Uh, it just is terrible for the Rockies. Fantastic trade for the Cardinals. I mean, they're getting, now it's going to be Arenado and Goldschmidt on the corners. You couldn't ask for a better corner duo. No doubt. And I mean, I think another thing, too, people might question is course field. Is Nolan Arenado going to be able to maintain these power numbers and these high offensive numbers? Uh, the OPS Plus, which neutralizes the ballparks that everyone plays in, uh, is going to affect that a little bit because he's played in Coors Field, but Coors Field, excuse me. But he's always been around 125 to 130, so that should be okay here. And look, DJ LeMahieu turned from a very good hitter to potential MVP candidate going to New York. You know, I think Arenado's numbers may diminish a little bit here, but I don't think he's going to be dropping from 40 bombs, OPSing 900, all the way down to 15, 20 home runs, OPSing 750. No, and even if he leaves Colorado, if he's even, uh, not even if he leaves, he is probably leaving now, if this, this trade is probably going to go through, but even if he's close to the numbers he had in Colorado, he's going to be a fantastic player. The defense isn't impacted by the altitude. If anything, he's going to be more refreshed on the field, so I think it's a fantastic move. You can say it again, but, you know, Rockies, this, Let's see uh, him this is such a bad look. It is a bad look, and it's sad, and I 100% agree with you. You know, you'd expect... When I saw that the $50 million was sent to the Cardinals, I, I even texted you. I was like, okay, maybe they'll get something back. You know, something like a little, maybe like a Libertor or Carlson. And those are still big-time prospects. But you'd think for, again, the best player at third base in Major League Baseball the last five years would bring back somebody. And then you add the $50 million in, and then you're literally getting basically just fringe prospects. It's, it's heartbreaking. Uh, to say the yeah, least. and the Cardinals have consistently produced a plethora of good young outfielders. You would have thought one of those guys would have been returning. Harrison Bader, even, including that trade, would have been a fantastic oh, return yeah, for Colorado. Yeah. He would have covered a ton of ground, exactly. And even, like, you know, I think the Cardinals were hoping, to, were definitely hoping to hold on to a guy like Tyler O'Neill. I mean, I don't even know if he's starting at this point. Now you have Bader in center. Fowler will probably get a good portion of the time in right. That leaves a spot for Carlson. Maybe Fowler and O'Neill split some time. O'Neill won the gold glove last year. He would have been a great fit in left field in Colorado. I'm sure they still have to figure out their outfield situation. But, whew, I mean, Arenado and Story really pushed up any sort of they, – they really salvaged any hope the Rockies had of being somewhat successful this year. But – yeah, well, you now know what's interesting too. It's going to be a tough, tough year. You know what's interesting too is if you're Trevor Story here, and I don't want to get too deep into this because we're not Trevor Story, but Nolan Arenado signs this mega deal, right, with all of these trade clauses that hold him back from being traded. That's why this is so complicated right now, right? the The idea was that Nolan Arenado was in Colorado to stay. What do you think Trevor Story's thinking right now? Obviously, the uh, narrative is that the Rockies want to extend Trevor Story, who's due to be a free agent right now. But you even have to wonder, you know, does he want to commit to that organization after literally seeing this happen right in front of his eyes for, what, two years after they extended Arenado? It's interesting. Again, I'm not Trevor Story, so I don't want to speak for him. But you got to wonder if that impacts it at all. 
I'll speak for Strever's story here. This is what story should be saying. Get me the hell out of here. <laughs> this is just a disastrous look. I mean, what are the, the Rockies? I think this sets them back years, this type of move. Because at, at worst case, you have your franchise player for another five, six years in Arenado. More than that, I mean... At worst, if you just kept him, obviously I would assume he may have opted out at some point, but it, it's not as bad of a look. And then you would have thought, okay, we're trading our franchise player. We at least better get some franchise-level you know, type potential prospects in return. They did got none of that. They traded away a franchise player, an all-star player, perennial all-star player, and got basically nothing in return. Their, their whole franchise just got a whole lot worse. And I said it earlier before I change topics but let's see Nolan Arenado win an MVP he's been held back from the course field argument has finished top 10 what one two three four five times uh, let's see it happen with the Cardinals lead them to a division title next year and what's a wide open division Alrighty, let's move to the Chicago Cubs getting an outfielder Jock Peterson who basically is going to replace Kyle Schwarber uh, is really like Kyle Schwarber just a better defender and remember go back Kyle Schwarber was non-tendered after he was projected to make about seven to nine million dollars in arbitration. The Cubs get what many would consider maybe even a better version of Schwarber for seven million dollars. So a good move for them, I think, and keeps them competitive. Yeah, and an interesting thing to note here is that earlier in the offseason, it was reported that the White Sox had offered Peterson more money over one year, but clearly he decided to wait out the market, and it didn't work out that well for him. The White Sox went on to sign Adam Eaton, interestingly enough, to a decent <laughs> deal. I think Same he price. got a million more, yeah, a million like more that. maybe, even, yeah, a close deal to Peterson, and Peterson, you would almost have to think, is a much more valuable player. 116 career OPS plus last season, he took a step back, but he was another one of those guys in that Petri article that if you include his postseason stats in 2020 which was obviously a shortened season uh, if you include those stats into his regular season he was an above average player um, and he's shown that over the past two seasons from 2018 and 2019 I'll spotlight those two seasons 125 OPS plus in 18 127 OPS plus in 19 and that's majority facing right-handed pitching uh, the Dodgers really haven't given him much of a chance to face any lefties in his career. But, you know, I think this was a huge factor in Peterson signing with the with the Cubs in a one-year deal is <clears throat> give me a year to see if I can hit left-handed pitching. The Cubs will give him the opportunity to do. And then I'll come in for my huge payday. If I can prove that I can hit lefties cl even close to as well as I hit righties, I'm going to be in for a massive payday because he's a decent defender. I mean, he's a pretty athletic guy in the outfield. And he just hits for a ton of power, 522 slugging, 18, 538, and 19 in his career, 470, which is a very respectable number for an entire career uh, for Peterson. But <clears throat> he's going to provide good pop for the Cubs in the outfield. And like you said, I think it's even an upgrade for Schwarber at a lesser price. Without a doubt, and you're right, getting to play every day, I think that is the reason why he's going to the Chicago Cubs. Because that's an opportunity I think he's been looking for for a while because he's almost been held back by that. And again, he was on a super powerful Dodgers team, so... You know, he was in a good spot, uh, but for sure. All right, let's move to the Giants now. Tommy Listella, second baseman, a guy that Ryan was incredibly high on, now going to the San Francisco Giants on a three-year, $19 million deal uh, reported by the San Francisco Chronicle. Really tremendous story for Listella, a guy who almost retired before 2016, made an all-star game. Now he has a deal with a lot of security, three years, $19 million. Um, and it's a Giants team that I was looking to compete this year. 
Yeah, and at first when I saw this deal, I thought, oh, maybe I didn't want the Red Sox to trade for Listella because, or, or, or sign him rather, excuse me, uh, because he's a little bit older. Three years is kind of a lot. I'm not sure if they'd, I'd want them to wrap him up for long. But he's only 31 years old, approaching 32 at this point. But, you know, um, I think it would have been a nice deal for them. But, you know, the Giants get a guy who's shown some positional versatility in the in, in the infield. He doesn't strike out a whole lot. He puts the bat on the ball in 20. 19. He was an all-star, 16 home runs prior to his injury. He only played 80 games, but fantastic numbers. 118 OPS plus in 2020, and he split some time with the Angels and A's for a 127 OPS plus, which was great for him. Uh, you know, like I said, he kind of the power numbers dropped. He didn't come close to that 16 home run total, but in 55 games, he still had 55 hits, so a hit per game for him in 2020. Good numbers for him, provides good contact. Only struck out 12 times in 228 plate appearances, so fantastic numbers. Like I mentioned, the 127 OPS Plus. And, you know, even before he kind of broke on the scene as an all-star level or close to that above-average player uh, in the past two seasons, he is a 104 OPS Plus in his career, so he's always a pretty decent bat, more of a bench guy, but now I think he's proved himself to be a full-time starter, and I think he'll get that opportunity with the San Francisco Giants. Yeah, and they've made some quietly decent moves this year with the Gosman qualifying offer, bringing in Brabia, Disclafani, Alex Wood, Matt Whistler, add Tommy Listella to the list. All right, last move. We've had so many moves tonight, just like last week here. Steven Souza Jr. signing a one-year deal with the Houston Astros. Again, some outfield depth for a team that lost George Springer this year, Josh Reddick as well. Uh, you got to imagine the three main guys now, as of now, are Brantley, Souza, and Tucker in that outfield. I uh, had a tough year last year in 11 games, hit a buck 48, uh, coming off of an ACL tear in 2019, but just as recently as 2017, picked up 53 extra base hits with the Tampa Bay Rays. So, could be a really good move for the Astros here. And yeah, and you mentioned it, the Astros have to be hoping he's going to be anything close to his 2017 season, 119 OPS plus in 17. And, you know, like you said, that ACL injury really devastated his career from that point forward. He only had 72 games, 70, you know, two games with the Diamondbacks in 2018 below average numbers and only played 11 in 2020 with the Cubs with a 58 OPS plus. So he really never got traction going. But, you know, the Astros need outfield help. They've only got lefties in the outfield thus far. And Brantley, Tucker, Straw can kind of, you know, hit from the other side of the plate. But... I think, uh, you know, it'll be a nice bench piece at worst, and if he gets anything close to he was in 2017, he could be a fantastic piece for them. No doubt about that. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap it up. We had 20-plus players and discussion topics in today's <laughs> to show. Weeks. You know, we got back close to the last week. We, we told you guys the hot stove would be heating up, and it is roaring now. It is ablaze, and we had an absolute blast this week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and although Max beat me in the January Matanzas matchup, I am still in high spirits, and we're hoping to keep the good momentum and good vibes rolling into next week, and we hope you guys all have a fantastic week of your own. Now.